0: This evening we're kicking off our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of Nehemiah, I should take a moment to remind you here that the book that we call Nehemiah was originally part of the previous book that we now call Ezra. You know, by the 9th century, some Latin versions of the Old Testament included a separation of the original work into two books that we now know to be Ezra and Nehemiah. By the 13th century, well, it was standard to find Ezra and Nehemiah presented as two distinct books within the Christian copies of the Old Testament. And so that's how we have it in our Old Testament today. Uh, sadly, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they don't provide us uh, with the author's name. Uh, and yet, according to tradition, it's believed that the author who created this historical account was none other than the priest named Ezra. And if that's the case, then Ezra was the scribe who created this accurate account of the events that transpired after the people of God were released from their Babylonian captivity. It's also important for us to remember that the book of Ezra was largely focused on the way that the Lord raised up Ezra in order to bring religious restoration to the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. And as we now shift our attention to the book of Nehemiah, we're going to now see how the Lord raised up this man named Nehemiah in order to establish the political restoration of Israel so that the people of God could safely serve the Lord there in Jerusalem. From this we can see then that The religious revival of Ezra was there to set the spiritual climate that actually prepared the way for the political restoration of Nehemiah. And as we continue to make our way through this incredible book, you know, we must not uh, forget here that uh, the Lord doesn't use political systems here on earth to create religious revivals. No, instead, he uses religious revivals to fix political systems. And that's what we have to remember, church. We have to remember that the Lord uses religious revivals to fix political systems, not the other way around. To prove my point, let's consider the way that the Lord raised up Nehemiah to help restore the political system there in Israel on the heels of the religious revival of Ezra. And so with that, let's turn our attention here to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we read the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, In the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, here in the beginning, beginning of this book, you know we learn about this day when this Jewish man named Hanani he returned to Shushan with bad news. And just for the sake of clarity, it will help you to know that Shushan had become the preferred winter residence of the Persian kings, and it had been that since the days of King Cyrus. And seeing how Hanani's journey from Judah uh, back to Babylon had placed him in Persia during the winter month of uh, Kislev, uh, well, then it made perfect sense for him to head straight to this citadel, which was there in Shushan. Uh, Ezra also informs us here that this journey took place in the 20th year. And just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that it's actually in chapter 2, where Nehemiah tells us that this was actually the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So if you're wondering the 20th year of what? Well, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And what this also means then is that this man named Hanani, he arrived in Shushan, the citadel, shortly after the events that we find in the final chapters of Ezra. Now, it's my guess that Henani was sent to seek help from King Artaxerxes, and while he was there in Shushan, he ended up meeting one of the king's servants, whose name was Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, it's in the final verse of this chapter, where we learn that Nehemiah was actually the king's cupbearer. Yeah, he was, he was the king's cupbearer. Or in other words, he was a servant of the king who kind of served as kind of a butler. And it's for this reason that he was there at the Persian citadel there in Shushan. And at the same time, we also learn here that Hanani was a, a kinsman of Nehemiah. And what this means then is that Nehemiah then must have been an Israelite. And as an Israelite, well, he was excited uh, at the arrival of Hanani and his friends. He was uh, hoping to receive a report about those who had returned to rebuild the temple in order to restore the state of Israel. With this in mind, let's turn our attention back to the book of Nehemiah. If you would look with me there, beginning at at verse 3. Here we find Hanani sharing the bad news with Nehemiah by declaring, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, as we consider this report, there should be no doubt in our minds here that the religious revival that had been occurring under the leadership of Ezra, it was actually creating the spiritual climate that caught the attention of Israel's enemies. Remember, after the temple was finally rebuilt, the people started to worship the Lord through the sacrificial system there in Jerusalem, and it was at that point in time when Ezra, he challenged those who had married idolatrous women from the pagan nations, he challenged them to repent of their sins by putting away their unbelieving wives. And, and then as the people of God began to obey the instructions of God's word, well, that's when the enemies of Israel responded by attacking the people of God. They attacked the people of God. And, 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 and bummer for them, the, the, the wall there in Jerusalem, the, the protective wall, the military wall, it was torn down. The gates were burnt with fire. They, they had no, uh, no real defense. But from this, listen, we can see how real religious revival will result in the spiritual attacks of the enemy. Real religious revival will result in the spiritual attack of the enemy. Listen, if the enemy isn't attacking your life, then you aren't doing anything that the enemy is worried about. If you aren't suffering any sort of spiritual attack, then the enemy's not concerned about you. And and the church that is isn't really engaging in real revival, well, the enemy what, what, what does the enemy care about that church? Real religious revival will result in spiritual attacks of the enemy. And Paul Paul summed it up best in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he declares this. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. From this we can see that the believers who begin to live a godly life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... Well, these believers will also begin to experience the persecution of ungodly people who really can't stand our commitment to Christ. Our commitment to Christ is offensive to them. And when you start living that out, when you start walking that out, when you start becoming a, a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, you better believe that the enemy is going to start attacking With that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised when a real revival of God's people results in the evil attacks of those who have made it their mission to stop the great commission of Christ Jesus. Knowing that there are evil men and imposters who uh, are serving Satan in this sort of way, uh, we would all do well to follow in the footsteps of Nehemiah. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that he responds to the attacks of the enemy. If you would look with me there at verse 4. Here Nehemiah declares, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now here in this verse we find Nehemiah, he's moved to tears as he heard about the persecution happening to his people. And while it's true that this report caused him to mourn for many days, well it's also true that Nehemiah was quick to remember that the God of Israel is the one who's able to protect his people from every enemy you know the the city walls can only do so much but the almighty god of heaven and earth he can protect his people from the enemy i want to remind you that nehemiah was actually at this point in time a servant of king artaxerxes but rather than immediately leveraging his connection with the king of persia nehemiah instead first sought help from the king of kings He interceded for the people there in the land of promise by simply praying to the king of kings who was also there in Israel. In Persia, you know, there in Shushan, well, Nehemiah couldn't just rush to help in a physical sort of way, but he rushed to help in a spiritual way by praying for the people of God. And in light of his example, you know, it's crucial for every Christian to remember that the king of kings is the one who is able to protect his people from the attacks of the enemy, regardless of where we are. And while there are times when the Lord will use civil leaders to protect us from persecution, we must always realize that those who place their faith in political rulers will typically be disappointed. If you're placing your faith in a political ruler, and I don't care what side of the aisle you're thinking about right now, you put your faith in a political leader, you're going to be disappointed. Because they're just people with problems and and, and failings just like anybody else. Human government will always devolve into corruption and tyranny. Why? Well, because we're corrupt. And because we all struggle with sin. But that being the case, I encourage you, don't trust in political leaders. Trust in the king of kings and pray to him for help i like the way that paul encouraged us to pray for those who are in positions of authority it's in first timothy chapter 2 there paul declares i exhort first of all that supplications prayers intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence for this is good and acceptable in the sight of god our savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth christian listen if you really want to live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence then we ought to be praying We have to be praying more and more every day and we have to be praying for every leader who is currently occupying any position of authority whether here in America or throughout the world and I'm not telling you exactly what to pray for I mean you can you can pray you know those uh go get them God prayers if you want or or save them God or whatever the case but we have to be praying for them Let's start praying and, and, and spend more time praying than complaining. And, and as we pray, you know, let's, let's ask the Lord to, to change the hearts of those who are leading us in the wrong direction. But I guarantee that our prayers will do much more than our complaints. At the same time, we should also pray with introspective humility as we consider how far we've failed and how often we fail to submit to our, our Savior. But this is the goal, I want to consider the prayer that Nehemiah presents here in our text tonight. I want to begin reading there at verse 5. We're going to look at the whole prayer and then come back and, and analyze it. It's there in verse 5 where Nehemiah prays, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day. I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, as we take a closer look at this prayer, we must not fail to notice that uh, the the word Lord at the beginning of this prayer. It's found back in verse five. That word Lord, it's written in all capitals, and the reason why this is so significant, well, as I often point out, this is because whenever we find the title Lord. Written in all capitals. Well, we know that the proper name of God is actually found in the original language, uh, according to ancient Jewish tradition. You know, the name of God that uh, that the Lord revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was so sacred that it was rarely spoken out loud by the Israelites. And since the Hebrew language is written without vowels, well, then there's a question about the proper way to pronounce the four consonants that make up the name of God, which is YHWH. Some say Yahweh, others say Jehovah. and, And with all this being the case, you know, most English Bibles simply just use the word Lord but in all capitals, and in this way we're, we're, being, uh, uh, we're, we're being helped to understand that the proper name of God is actually found in the original Hebrew text, and so they give you LORD in all caps rather than the YHWH. And so what this means then is that Nehemiah, Nehemiah here, he's not just presenting to any random Lord. No, he's, he's praying to the Lord of lords. He's praying to the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Jacob and the God of Moses. And we should also notice that he began this prayer by exalting the name of the Lord. Notice again there in verse 5, here Nehemiah begins this prayer by declaring, I pray, Lord, God of heaven. He's praying to the Lord who is the God of heaven. I should point out that the word for heaven was not only used in reference to the visible universe uh, and the abode of the stars, but it was also used in reference to the invisible dwelling place of our infinite creator. And simply put, Nehemiah began this prayer by acknowledging the Lord's position of prominence over the entirety of his creation, both visible or invisible. Everything that has been created was created by the Lord, who is the God of heaven. Not only that, but Nehemiah also begins this prayer by acknowledging the greatness of our God. As a matter of fact, look with me again there in verse 5. Here Nehemiah declares, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. That word great was used uh, in reference to God's infinite existence. It was used in reference to his eternal extensiveness. Not only that, but we find the word awesome here, which comes from a Hebrew word, which was used of that which causes astonishment or awe. It inspires reverence and godly fear. You know, when we talk about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, you know, we're talking about this sort of awe-filled reverence of God. And so we see that Nehemiah was exalting the, the Lord's awe-inspiring magnific- magnificence, which, which actually extends according to the measure of his infinite greatness, which simply means it's never-ending. We should also notice how Nehemiah began this prayer by taking time to acknowledge the Lord's trustworthiness. As a matter of fact, look with me again there in verse 5. Here Nehemiah declares, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant. Now that word covenant refers to the agreement that God made with his chosen people. And so we see here that Nehemiah was praying to the trustworthy God who is always true to his word. He's always true to his word. And I have no doubt that, you know, we we would love to be people who make a promise and always keep our promises. And yet I'm sure that we've all broken a promise or two. But God never breaks his promises. He always keeps his covenant. And so he is completely trustworthy. At the same time, he also acknowledged the gracious mercy of the Lord. As a matter of fact, uh, notice with me again there in verse five here, Nehemiah declares, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy... With those who love you and observe your commandments. Now, that word mercy is translated from a Hebrew word which was used in reference to the Lord's loving kindness. It refers to his gracious favor. And while it's true that there's no one who deserves God's merciful grace, well, we can be thankful that it's also true. He's always ready to pour out his merciful grace on those who will simply receive the love of the Lord. And so we should. Now, as we consider the way that Nehemiah began this prayer, I believe that we would all do well to begin our prayers by taking some time to acknowledge the exalted state of our our Lord. You know, we shouldn't just, "Oh, oh, Father, here's everything that I want. No, we should take some time to acknowledge how great he is, how awesome he is, how trustworthy he is. In this way, we're prayerfully approaching the king of kings with the respectful reverence that he deserves. Later on, we'll notice how you know, Nehemiah is a little apprehensive about approaching the king of Persia. How much more concerned should we be to approach the king of kings who has never lied, who has never sinned, who, who, who has never done anything unrighteous or unholy? How awe inspiring is it to come into the throne room of God and present Him with our petitions? We ought to consider that as we take the time to pray. And listen, not only should we approach our Creator with re- this respectful reverence as we exalt the name of our Lord, but we should also pray with heartfelt contrition as we consider our own shortcomings. In order to better grasp the importance of this approach, I want to continue to consider the example of Nehemiah's prayer. If you would, let's look again here at verse 6. Here Nehemiah prays, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. Now, as we take a closer look at this prayer, we can see here how Nehemiah approached the Lord with heartfelt humility. He's not saying, "Well, you you owe it to me." You know, I'm your servant, and you got to listen to me. No, no, no. He's asking the Lord, "Will you listen to me? Will you look upon my prayer?" I'm just your servant. He's acknowledging here his status as the Lord's servant, or you might also say the Lord's slave. Not only that, but he also refers to the children of Israel as the servants of the Lord and in this way we can see how he prayerfully approaches the Lord with his heartfelt humility of just saying, "Hey, look, I'm nothing before you. I don't deserve to come before you. I shouldn't even expect that you're going to even listen to my prayer, but will you?" In light of his example, I can't help but to remember something that James wrote in James chapter 4, there he declares, "God resists the proud." but gives grace to the humble. I love that. If you come before God with pride in your heart, he's not hearing it. But if you approach him in all humility, he listens. Those who want to prayerfully approach the throne of the Lord should take the time to humble themselves before our almighty God. And this not only includes a confession of our servile status, But this also includes the confession of our sins. With this in mind, let's consider again Nehemiah's example. If you would look with me again there at verse 6, here Nehemiah declares, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses now here in these verses we find Nehemiah he's now confessing his sins before the lord and not only that but he also confesses the sins of his family as well as the sins of all the people of Israel he's basically saying hey we're your servants but we're not really good servants we're sinners Nehemiah continues to humble himself through the confession of their carnal corruption so that the Lord might receive him in his humility. We should also notice here that he actually took the time to confess three specific types of corruption. This includes their failure to keep the commandments, which he explains there in verse 7. They failed to keep the commandments and the statutes and the ordinances of the Lord the sake of clarity it'll help you to know that the commandments well this was a reference to the 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 ten commandments or the decalogue as we call them then there were the statutes these were the religious and the civil laws which are listed in the torah and then we find the ordinances were the judicial punishments that they were supposed to prescribe for those who were lawbreakers and according to nehemiah they had failed in all three categories They had failed in all three categories. They were guilty of breaking all three uh, of these categories when it came to keeping the covenant that God made with them. And it's for this reason that Nehemiah says, you're the covenant keeper, we're the covenant breakers. And so he's confessing their carnal corruption before the Lord. And in light of his example, you know, those who prayerfully approach the Lord, we ought to do so with heartfelt humility as we confess our sins to the Lord. Oh, it's real easy to come before the Lord and, and, and say, Lord, you know, get those people who have sinned against me. Go punish those people who have hurt me. Did you hurt anybody? you gonna, you going to talk to God about that at all? But they hurt me, yeah? Haven't we all? I mean, aren't we all guilty? We would do well to approach the Lord with some humility, recognizing that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray that, you know, that we would forgive others as the Lord forgives us. Well, after we've acknowledged our own sins before the Lord, then we're able to start praying presenting him with our petitions. And with this as the focus, let's consider the petition that Nehemiah presents here in our text tonight. If you would look with me again at Nehemiah chapter one, we'll pick up our study at verse eight here. Nehemiah declares, remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place.'" which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand now here in these verses we find Nehemiah he's now beginning to present his prayerful petitions to the Lord and he begins here by asking the Lord to remember the promise that he made to the people of uh, of Israel through Moses more specifically, Nehemiah is referring here to the promise that we find in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, where the Lord promises to restore the people of God if they would simply repent of their sins and return to him. so basically, hey, when you find yourself scattered you know th- throughout the nations, when you, when you find yourself under uh, under the punishment of heaven, listen, if you would simply repent and return to me, then I will heal your land, and According to the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, we learn that when He brings the people back into the land. He also promises to prosper them and multiply them even more than their forefathers. It's with this promise in mind that Nehemiah comes along and prayerfully presents this petition as he asks the Lord to do what he said he would do. He's he's asking the Lord to fulfill the prophetic passage of Scripture that's found there in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in light of his example, as we consider the way that Nehemiah is basically taking the word of God and saying, hey, remember when you promised, promised this? Would you do this? Would you do this thing that you promised you would do? From this, I would argue that we would all do well to make sure that our prayerful petitions are actually in line with the word of God. Christian, listen, if you're praying prayers that are in conflict with God's word, don't be surprised when God says, uh-uh. Not gonna do it's not going to happen. I'm not giving you this thing that I told you you, you, you don't need or, or shouldn't have. You know, a lot of our prayers are, are, are based in a greedy gain for more. And yet, in the Word of God, we're told not to have a greedy gain for more. We need to pray according to the Word of God. And listen... When we pray according to the word of God, we also pray according to the will of God. And when we pray according to the will of God, we can rejoice in knowing that we're going to receive what we've asked for according to the will of God. And so rather than, you know, coming up with prayers that are in conflict with God's word, let's make sure that we know God's word so that then we can pray accordingly. We should also notice the personal petition that Nehemiah then presents in verse 11. Here he declares, "O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, here in the final portion of Nehemiah's petition, we, we find Nehemiah asking the Lord to help him to prosper. And just to be clear here, Nehemiah wasn't asking the Lord for more money. He wasn't praying the formulaic prayers that the prosperity preachers present us with. No, instead he was prayerfully asking the Lord for favor, for merciful favor, as then he would set out to seek opportunity to approach the king of Persia. Remember, Nehemiah here points out that he's the cupbearer of the king. And what this actually means is that he was the servant who was responsible for bringing drinks and food before the king. Not only that, but the cupbearer was also kind of a personal bodyguard of sorts. You see, the cupbearer would first taste the food, he would first taste the drink before it was then served to the king. And, and you know, if the cupbearer then died, then the king would, you know, be able to live. You better believe that the cupbearer himself was a man that the king trusted. The king had to trust his cupbearer because, you know, if the cupbearer, you know, was, was a bad guy, then the poison would be getting through. But I believe that the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, totally trusted Nehemiah. And, and the reason why is because Nehemiah was probably a, an outstanding uh, man of character. But as we consider his prayerful petition here, there should be no doubt in our minds that Nehemiah, he's not praying for personal prosperity here, nor was he praying for a greater position. No, instead he's praying for the opportunity to present the king of Persia with his concerns about the situation that was happening there in the land of promise. Remember, the enemies were attacking the people of God as they were attempting to walk in obedience. Nehemiah being in this position before the king, he, he saw that he had an opportunity to make a difference. But rather than rushing forward in the hopes that King Artaxerxes would just give him what he wanted, no, he spent time praying first. He made sure that his heart was right first. He, he made sure that he was in line with God's will first before approaching the king. In our study next week, we'll learn about the way in which the Lord then answered this prayer request. And, and, and yet, for, our, uh, for the sake of our study tonight, I just want to take a moment to point out here that Nehemiah was praying to the Lord before approaching King Artaxerxes. And the reason why is because he realized that the King of Kings is more powerful than the, than the kings of the earth. The King of Kings is more powerful than the kings of the earth. And the, and the King of Persia at this point in time was the most powerful king on the planet. And yet, Nehemiah understood. He understood that the king of kings is still more powerful. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 21. There he declares, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Incredible. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you believe that? Christian, listen, the Lord is able to influence the hearts of those who occupy positions of civil authority here on the the earth. And with that being the case, we must not forget that the Lord has not only placed the rulers in their places, but the Lord has also then called us to pray for those in authority. He raises up the kings, he brings them down, and then tells us, pray for them. Now listen, I realize it's much more fun to complain about them. But show me in the Bible where the Lord says, if you complain enough, then I will change their hearts. If you post enough memes, then I will change the leadership. Haven't seen that verse yet. But that's how we act. If I just complain enough, something will change, right? Nope. And yet the Lord has called us to pray for those in authority that we might lead a a quiet and peaceable life. How much time do we spend praying for our leaders? How many times a day do you pray for Biden? How many times a day do you pray for Pelosi? How many times a day do you pray for name, name the one in charge, name name the, the politician. How many times do you pray for them? How many times do you ask the Lord to change their heart? Maybe even save them. If we're following in the footsteps of Nehemiah, well then we're spending time prayerfully asking the Lord to change the hearts of every ungodly ruler and to use us whenever possible. With this as the goal, I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Listen, rather than living our lives with hearts that are filled with anxiety because, oh no, the IRS has more money, Uh oh, the FBI is doing raids, oh no, here we go, it's it's tyranny all over again. Yeah, that, that can make us very anxious to, to consider. Paul says, don't be anxious. Quit worrying about it. Simply present your prayerful petitions to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God and then go chill out. He's in control, isn't he? He is the king of kings, is he not? He's able to you know, direct their hearts like, like the Mississippi River? Do you really believe it? Because if you do, then there's nothing to be anxious about. Rather than focusing our attention on everything we perceive to be a problem, which we don't even have enough sense to even know if it's a problem or not yet. But we perceive it to be a problem, and so we're anxious about it. Okay, have fun with that. How about, how about instead let's focus our attention on the promises of God, because the promises that God has presented to those who trust in him are true and noble, just, pure, and lovely, and they'll get our minds off of all the things that we perceive to be problems. Rather than focusing all of our attention on every bit of bad news that that comes across the, the, the computer screen, let's instead meditate on those things that are of good report. Rather than worrying about the wicked people who are trying to ruin this world, let's meditate on those things that are virtuous. Rather than complaining about every problem, let's meditate on those things that are praiseworthy. And as we do, Paul tells us that the God of peace will be with us as we continue to walk by faith with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.